All right, everyone, I hope that time of worship was a blessing for you. And of course, more importantly, that it was a blessing to our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Because again, worship ultimately, it benefits God's people, but it is for God. And so again, I'm just excited to be able to gather with you online and to be worshiping the Lord. And now to hear from the Lord through his word, because as Christians, we believe in a God who is personal and a God who has spoken to us. And so we have God's word, and I believe God has a word, a timely word for each of us today. And so let's see what God has to say to the church. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Exodus chapter 17. Exodus chapter 17. We are presently in that section of the Old Testament known as the Wilderness Narrative. Again, the Wilderness Narrative, it pretty much is what it sounds like. It was a very difficult time of testing in the life of Israel. The wilderness is not where they came from, but it is not where they want to be. And it's a testing ground. It's a place where Israel's feeling out who God is. And God is testing and revealing the unbelief and the hardness of heart present in his people. And again, I feel that as we're going through this crazy time of COVID-19 and the government restrictions and the lockdown and the social unrest and the protesting and the rioting and the upcoming election, I feel like we're in a wilderness. And so I believe there is something that God wants to say today in this text, in Exodus 17, that is entirely relevant for his people today. And so let's go ahead and read Exodus 17. We'll look at the chapter as a whole, and then we'll pray and get into today's study. So Exodus 17. This is God's word. Then all the congregation of the children of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of Sin, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped in Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people contended with Moses, and said, Give us water that we may drink. So Moses said to them, Why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water. And the people complained against Moses, and said, Why is it you have brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Go on before the people, and take with you some of the elders of Israel. Also take in your hand your rod with which you struck the river, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and the water will come out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah, because of the contention of the children of Israel, and because they tempted the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Now Amalek came and fought with Israel in Rephidim. And Moses said to Joshua, Choose us some men and go out to fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses said to him, and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And so it was, when Moses held up his hand, that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands became heavy. So they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side, and the other on the other side. And his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. So Joshua defeated Amalek, his people at the edge of the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this for a memorial in the book and recount it in the hearing of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called its name, The Lord is my banner. For he said, Because the Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just come before you today and we believe that you are the God of Scripture. Lord, that you have spoken 
through your word. You have spoken through the holy apostles and prophets, that you inspired them, you breathed through them, so that these words would be the very word of God. And Lord, we believe, as scripture tells us, that these words are profitable for us, for teaching, for correction, for edification, for exhortation, for training in righteousness, so that the people of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. And so, Lord, I believe you have a word for us today, but I believe we also need the aid of the Holy Spirit to be able to hear these words as the word of God, for our hearts to be softened and not hardened against you. And so, Lord, we do pray that the Spirit would bear witness to the truth of these words, that you would enlighten our minds and our hearts, that we would receive your people with open hands and believing hearts, whatever you would speak to the church today. So, Lord, I just ask for your blessing now on this study. Bless all my brothers and sisters now as we join together in seeing what you want to speak to us today. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, friends, so we're in this crazy journey of the Exodus story, and we are in the wilderness narrative. Israel's going to spend 40 years of their life in the wilderness. Now, some of being in the wilderness, and we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, some of this being in the wilderness is not Israel's fault. It's not sin that Israel's in the wilderness at all. What sin does is it exacerbates the experience, it makes the experience far worse than it needs to be, and in the end it prolongs the wilderness experience. But sometimes people get the wrong idea that if you follow God, you won't end up ever in a wilderness. Well, we know from the scriptures that's not true, that it was actually God's leading. It was the pillar of cloud, which was God himself. Moses was following the cloud, actually led them through the desert. And it even says in the scriptures that God didn't lead them on the quickest, shortest route because for them, they didn't have enough faith and they would have encountered Egyptian military outposts and they would have been scared and turned back around. So God had to lead them a little bit of a longer way around. And so just this basic idea that even if you and I are following Jesus, we're gathering you know, for, for fellowship, we're listening to the word, we're praying, we're giving, we're supporting the work of the ministry, we're doing good works. And yet, friends, I just want to make sure that we are all aware we can still go through a wilderness season in life. And that does not mean we're necessarily in sin. What we need to think about very hard is what are we doing with our wilderness season? Are we being like Israel where they would complain and they would neglect and they would challenge God. They would put God to the foolish test. They would complain. They would slander. They would threaten. What we want to do is make sure that we're going through the wilderness season of life, this present season, in a way that is glorifying to God. And I believe we can figure out what that looks like by looking at Israel, looking, where, looking at where they went right, but also where they went wrong. Now, something unique happens here in chapter 17. Already, the first half of the chapter, verses 1 through 7, repeats a familiar situation. So, in verses 1 through 7, we see that once again, Israel needs water, and they, they don't have any water. So, this is going to be a repeat of what we've already seen. They've already struggled with water. They didn't have water. They finally came to a place where there was water, but then it was so bitter they couldn't drink it. And God performed the miracle of making the water sweet again. Then later, Israel complains they don't have any food. And again, God sends food. So, in the first half of this chapter, we see something familiar. And I will make a point about that. But what we're going to do today is we're actually going to focus on the second half of chapter 17, which is going to be verses 18, or excuse me, verse 8 through 16. And I'm calling today's message, Fighting Our Battles with Prayer. Fighting Our Battles with Prayer. I believe that what we have before us is a prime example of what prayer is and what prayer entails. Now, just let me make a couple of comments before we get into our study. 
I know some people, some scholars would like to say, well, it doesn't say Moses is praying exactly. But I'd like to make a couple of points just at the outset. Uh, first of all, we do see Moses pray. We actually see him pray in verse 4. So in verse 4, we do see Moses pray. He prays to God. Anytime Moses is talking to God, that's prayer. For many of us, we forget. Sometimes prayer can be formal and, and it can be corporate, but sometimes prayer is just conversation. It's just talking to God. And sometimes Moses' speech is so casual to God, he just speaks to him like he would talk to, to anybody else. We almost neglect the fact that that's prayer. Anytime we talk to God, that is prayer. So Moses is already praying in verse 4. Then in the main scene, the battle with Amalek in verses 8 through 16, it doesn't say what, what, if Moses is saying anything in particular. Maybe he was, maybe he wasn't. But I think the point is this. In this story of the battle with the Amalekites, Moses is an intercessor. He is an intercessor. He's not the one in the battle. Joshua and the rest of the Israelite men, they're the ones in the battle. So he's an intercessor. And then, of course, we have this symbolic picture of the staff in his hand, which represents the power and the presence of God. And it's the case that in this situation, as, as he's reaching for heaven, and Moses did this before earlier in Exodus when he left Pharaoh's presence, it says he reached his hands toward the heaven and he would pray. And God would send the plagues or he would send the plague away, whatever the case happened to be. And so I think we have a picture of Moses functioning as an intercessor on behalf of the Israelites. And as he stretches out his arms to God, we see that the battle is being won. And when his hands are being lowered, we see that the battle is being lost. And so without debating maybe some of these scholarly points people want to make, I do believe what we have is a picture of prayer. And so what I'm calling today's message is fighting our battles with prayer. And the first point I want to make is this. When our hearts are hard, we fight our battles according to the flesh. Number one, when our hearts are hard, we fight our battles according to the flesh. Look at verses one through seven again. It says, Then all the congregation of the children of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of Sin, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped in Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Now, before we criticize Israel for not believing and for failing the tests over and over and over, I would like to point something out. Notice how in the middle of verse 1, it says they journeyed out according to the commandment of the Lord. So even though Israel is going to dishonor God, disrespect God, fail to believe, fail to trust, it's not like there's no obedience at all. Sometimes as Christians, we can kind of have this all or nothing idea about our faith. Either we believe, well, I have to have perfect faith about everything, or you, you just have no faith about anything. But I think what's more true to life is this picture we see here. We're going to see that Israel fails a particular test. They're not believing God. They're not trusting in God. And yet, the very fact they are journeying is obedience to God. They didn't have to follow Moses. They already threatened to turn back and go to Egypt. They could have. So even though what we're seeing in this scene is some unbelief, and yet it is also mingled with belief, with obedience. And so I think that's an important lesson for us that we realize we can have genuine faith. We, we do trust, but it's also mingled with doubt. It's mingled with unbelief. And the reason God brings tests into our lives is to reveal that mixture of belief and unbelief. Because God's ultimate goal is to purify our faith so that our faith is pure. He wants pure faith in our lives. So if any of us are Christians, by definition, we have some real faith and trust in Jesus Christ. But that doesn't mean we, we have all trust in Jesus Christ about everything. For some of us today, we might trust genuinely Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior to forgive us of our sins and that when we die, we will go to heaven and be with him and be resurrected ultimately and live in a glorified body on the new heavens and the new earth. And yet, 
We might be in the middle of this wilderness season and we're doubting God's goodness as far as financial provision. We're doubting his goodness as far as maybe our, our marriages or we're doubting our goodness as far as raising our children is going. Maybe we're doubting God's goodness as far as his sovereignty and his ability to oversee all the crazy political and social stuff that's going on. So I just want to point out that we can have genuine faith, and yet we should be open to the critique of Scripture that our faith may not be perfect, and that the Lord wants to purify that faith. So Israel journeying according to the commandment of the Lord, and yet we're going to see they fail another test. But there was no water for the people to drink. Now, we're starting to see a pattern here. Perhaps the first time Israel doesn't have any water it makes a little more sense that they would complain and they would doubt and they would be scared. But we know God has come through for them. So you would think you start to learn. And friends, I want to make this point here. Faith is not automatic. Growing in faith is not automatic. It's possible for you and I to face the same test over and over and over and fail every time even as believers. So what we want to do beginning this week, let's use this week as an opportunity to reset and to get things right. If we've been going through this wilderness season of all this crazy COVID stuff and everything else that's going on, and maybe we've been failing, maybe we've been doubting God, we've been complaining, we've been blaming people, we've been slandering people, um, we've, we've been trusting in ourselves and trusting in you know, other finite, fallible, sinful human beings to, to save us rather than going to God. Let's use this week and this day as an opportunity to, to go right where Israel went wrong because we're, we're facing many of these same tests over and over and over. Verse 2, he says, Therefore the people contended with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. So Moses said to them, Why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? So I said, when our hearts are hard, we do battle according to the flesh. Now, what does that look like? How do you know if you're doing battle according to the flesh? Well, there's three things that we can use, three attributes of battling in the flesh, and they are this. Uh, number one, we go to man before God. We go to man before God. Notice that in verse two, who do the Israelites go to first? They don't go to God. They go to Moses. So that's the number one thing. What we want to do is go to God first. That's the number one thing. It doesn't mean we don't go to people. It doesn't mean we, you don't share it with your husband or your wife or your son or your daughter or, or whoever it might be or, or Twitter or Facebook or whatever it is. But we go to God first. When we're in the flesh, what we do is we go to man before we go to God. And to be honest with you, in many cases, we go to man instead of God. Not just before, but sometimes instead of God. And friends, if we're doing that, we're doing battle according to the flesh. And what that means is we're getting a hard heart. And now that's a even a greater concern. Because that's all this outward behavior is the symptom, the disease is hardness of heart. So we can know if we go to man before God, or if we go to man instead of God, that we're getting a hard heart. Secondly, we complain. Notice in verse 2, Therefore the people contended with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. So again, notice that in the flesh, we, we start fights. We start arguments with people. James talk, talks about this. Where do wars and fights come from? Do they not come from your fleshly desires among you? I'm seeing many believers doing this right now in uh, the social media sphere, Facebook. I'm seeing just different people, kind of Christians, attacking one another rather than asking questions, trying to understand people, uh, sharing their point of view, whatnot. People are looking to get into a fight. Um, and sometimes, as much as I all like to try to use Facebook and other uh, media as a tool to be able to engage with people, but sometimes people are just, they're so they're so upset and they're so angry and they're just they just want to complain that you really can't talk to them and so we want to make sure that that's not what we're doing that we're not just complaining about everything and the word used here contended is a different word than what we've seen before so far so far i told you that we've seen this word loon loon in hebrew means to grumble and murmur and it's kind of with the idea of the intent to rebel 
but we have an even stronger word here, reeve, and reeve is used typically in a legal context. So probably what we have here is this building tension that yes, Israel's facing many of the same things, but it's accumulating in their hearts. Since they're battling according to the flesh, they're not giving it to God, they're not casting their burdens and cares upon God, what's happening? All the anxiety, all the fear, all the anger is just building up inside them. It's just building up, and now it's just like, ah, it's just coming out onto Moses. And we're seeing things heightened to where now they almost, they want to take legal action against Moses. They want to do something against him. They have had it. So they are complaining. Uh, thirdly, when our hearts are hard, we fight our battles according to the flesh. When we doubt the Lord and put him to the test, we can know our hearts are getting hard and we're battling according to the flesh. When we doubt the Lord and we put him to the test, look at verse 7. Verse 7 says, So he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the contention of the children of Israel, and listen to what they say, and because they tempted the Lord or tested the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us or not? Imagine that. Is the Lord among us or not? Friends, is there any question? Should Israel be asking this? Is the Lord with us? Has God not shown time and time again that yes, he is Emmanuel. He is God with us. So is it, is it a lack of God and God's goodness and God's mercy and God's provision and God's grace? Is it God's fault that brings Israel to the place where they say, is the Lord among us? I like what Old Testament scholar Walter Kaiser says about Israel's unbelief here. He says, in six months, in just six months, Israel witnessed 10 plagues the pillar of cloud and fire, the parting of the Red Sea, the sweetening of the bitter waters, and the sending from he food from heaven. And yet they say in verse 7, is the Lord among us or not? Think about that in just six months. I know some of us might feel, well, gosh, I've never seen a one of those miraculous things of the Lord, or, or maybe I have, but it's been years. Israel has seen all of these things in six months, and yet they can come to a place where they question God, they put him to the test, and they say, is the Lord among us or not? Friends, what I think this reveals is that when we're doubting God, many times what we say is I'm doubting God because of something God is doing or not doing. But what we see here in Scripture is that to a hard heart, there is no amount of goodness, no amount of miracles, no amount of provision that will ever be enough to an unbelieving heart. There is not enough. And this reminds me of something Jesus said, and I believe it gives context to it. Jesus in the Gospels, the, the crowds, I believe it was the religious leaders in particular, they were saying of Jesus, what sign will you show us? What sign will you show us? And what was Jesus' response? A wicked and perverse generation seeks after a sign, but none will be given to it except that of the prophet Jonah. A wicked and perverse generation seek a sign. I know sometimes people have read that in the Gospels and they go, what's perverse or wicked about wanting proof? What, what's the point? I think Jesus is saying this. To those who are unbelieving and wicked in their hearts, they are always seeking after another sign because no sign is ever good enough. Friends, at some point, it is no longer about God revealing himself. It is no longer about evidence. It is no longer about how many Bible verses we share with people or apologetics, how much we show people, well, there has to be a creator and there has to be a God and the Bible is God's word and this is how the Bible was put together and this is how you can know that the Bible is second to none in terms of manuscript evidence and reliability and etc., 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 as much evidence as we can provide, friends, at some point, the spotlight has to be on the unbelieving heart. 
that to an unbelieving heart, no amount of evidence, no miracle, no number of miracles will ever be enough. And so friends, the first thing we want to say this morning when we're talking about battling, fighting our battles with prayer, the first thing we want to make sure we're not doing is battling in the flesh. And again, we know that we have a hard heart. Our hearts are getting hard and we're battling in the flesh when we go to man before God or instead of God, when we complain and when we doubt the Lord and put him to the test. Now, secondly, we can know when our hearts are soft because we go to God in prayer first. We can know when our hearts are soft because we go to God in prayer first. Look at verse 4. So in contrast to Israel, whereas the first thing they do is complain against Moses, look what Moses does. Verse 4. So Moses cried out to the Lord saying, What shall I do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. What's the first thing Moses does? Moses goes to God in prayer. This is a prayer. This might not be prayer the way that many people conceive of it. It, it doesn't sound like the Lord's prayer in Matthew 6. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. This, this sounds more conversational, doesn't it? It sounds more personal. And I think, again, what we see in the life of Moses, I also think is a part of the model of prayer that Scripture provides. Later in Exodus 33, the Bible is going to say, And the Lord spoke unto Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend. And I think this is a part of what that means. That in our lives of prayer, yes, we can have structure to our prayer. We can have discipline to our prayer. I think we can use the Lord's Prayer as a model, and I think we should. We can, you can read a, a written prayer. I know some Christian traditions will actually read a prayers. They'll read it as a congregation. I think that's fine. But I also think we're invited to have the kind of prayer life that Moses has. When the rest of the people would simply go attack another person, go complain to somebody, go tell them how mad they are and what a lousy job they're doing, the first thing Moses does is he goes to God in prayer. I believe that this is an example for us. That whenever we have an issue, whenever we have a problem, whenever we feel fear, anxiety, anger, bitterness, resentment, whatever it might be, I believe that one of the ways both, I'm not just saying we should do this. I'm also saying this is a gauge of where we are, friends. This lets us know where we are. Is my first impulse to always go tell somebody else, always complain and, and you know let people know what, what I think they're doing wrong, or do I go to God first? So that lets me know when I start getting in a season where I'm always going to somebody else first, I'm always texting somebody first, I'm always posting a comment on social media first. I think we can know, again, that might not be a sin outwardly, and a lot of people are not going to know, and they're not even going to say anything to you. But what I'm saying is a matter of priority. Be aware that when we start going to other people first, that means our hearts are no longer being what they ought to be. We can know our hearts are soft towards God when we go to God first in prayer. Now, as we look at verses 8 through 16, this is going to be the majority of what we're discussing this morning. So again, our theme is fighting our battles in prayer. And like I said, we've already seen Moses pray in verse 4. So Moses is a praying man. He's already prayed in this context. And then we see Moses functioning as an intercessor. And we even see his hands raised symbolically with the staff, symbolic of the power and presence of God. And we see when his hands grow weary and grow down, the Israelites begin to lose. And when they're up, they win. So I believe we have a picture of prayer. So what can we learn about this battle with the Amalekites? And what does it teach us about the nature of prayer? Well, I think it teaches us four things. Number one, it teaches us this. Prayer is not a replacement for responsible action. Number one, prayer is not a replacement for responsible action. Look at verse nine. It says, And Moses said to Joshua, Choose us some men and go out to fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. 
notice that what we have here is a picture of divine sovereignty and human action. Divine sovereignty and human action. It's also a holistic picture of what spiritual warfare looks like. Now, I think this picture we have right here in verse 9 is very helpful in dispelling two kinds of extreme errors. One error is that it's all up to us. It's just about me. It's just about my human effort. It's just about the money I have. It's just about the talent I have, the skills I have, the people I have on my team, and how smart we are. And that's and that's all it is. And the Bible might give me some values and some priorities and some biblical principles, but really it's all up to me. So that's how some people look at spiritual warfare. It's too naturalistic. It banishes too much the supernatural power and presence of God in the world. So again, I'm not talking about a complete non-believer here. I'm just saying believers who are of the persuasion that all God really does is, is kind of give me some information in the Bible, but then it's really all up to me. God helps those who help themselves kind of a thing. So that's one extreme. And I believe verse 9 says that's wrong. On the other hand, we have people who go to the other extreme and they say, well, spiritual warfare means I don't do anything but pray. I don't have to do anything. I, I you know, if I'm, if the battle is for finances, I just pray, but I don't have to go to work. I don't have to make decisions. I don't have to, you know, maybe quit this job and take another job, or we're going to have to move here instead of doing this, or we're going to downsize and we're going to do that. Some people get the idea that no, I shouldn't have to do anything because if it's a spiritual battle, then I only do quote unquote spiritual things, which means any kind of human action, my effort, my involvement, our involvement together, being wise, getting the right team of people together, uh, having a strategy, having a plan is outside the realm of spiritual warfare and it's, it's just prayer and fasting or something of that nature. So I think verse 9 is a wonderful little picture that dispels both of those things. Notice what you have in verse 9. The first thing Moses says is Joshua. So some real guys are coming to fight. So again, in our context, when we use the word battle here, it's quite literal. We might use the word battle spiritually to apply to any number of things. So we might use it, for example, of, hey, just the economy in general is not good. And we, we might call that a battle. But then somebody, a, you know, a family member or, or some competitor in business or whatever is like personally slandering you and attacking you. And then you call that a battle also. So kind of in this historical narrative, we might make a distinction. Um, you might say that prior to this, Israel, they didn't have a battle in the wilderness. They just dealt with the fallen nature of the world, namely that they were in a wilderness that looks the opposite of Eden. And I believe there's a comparison being made. You had the lush garden of Eden where there was no shortage of food and water and natural beauty. And then here they are in this wilderness where none of those things is readily present. And so I wouldn't call those things strictly speaking, a battle, although there can be a spiritual component to it, certainly. But certain, they were just dealing with food and water. It wasn't like anybody necessarily was attacking them. But here, for the first time in the wilderness, we literally see someone attacking them. It is actually a battle. A group of people are coming against Israel. So that's the context. And notice how Moses responds. Does he say, oh, this isn't spiritual. We'll just fight it this way. Or, or does he say, well, it's, it's all spiritual, so we won't fight it? No, he says both. Notice he says, choose us some men and go out and fight with Amalek. So Moses acknowledges human responsibility. He says, these guys are coming to fight us. They've got swords. We're going to have to fight these guys. It's not like, hey, let's go pray instead. Let's go pray and just hope it all goes away. Moses accepts, hey, we got to take responsibility. We're going to have to do something about it. So he picks Joshua. And he sends Joshua out to go fight. But notice he doesn't do that alone. Notice he says, and tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. So you have this picture of human responsibility, responsible action, and yet prayerful supplication. And so that's my first point. Prayer is not a replacement for responsible action. 
Now, I do want to make this point. As a general principle, that holds true, that prayer is not a replacement for responsible action. I believe in general these things ought to go together. Now, I do acknowledge at certain times it may be seemingly more one more immediately than the other. Uh, for example, if you're at a pool with your kids and your kid who you, who you know doesn't know how to swim and they don't have floaties or a life jacket on and they fall into the deep end and they start sinking, you're not going to sit down and lift up your hands and start praying whether God will save them or whether he wants you to go in the pool. No, you jump, you take responsible human action, and you just dive right into the pool, and you save your kid, and then, of course, you, you, you're thanking God and praying for God for your kid to be okay and that kind of a thing. So there's going to be moments where the responsible action side of this, that's, that's just what we do. We do that first. But there's other times where there's things we can't do anything about. Again, sometimes, obviously, with certain uh, ailments, certain health problems, diagnoses that we receive, there's things we can do. But sometimes there's things people say, or, or a doctor might say to us, and there's really nothing you can do. You're in the waiting game. They said, hey, you have this, and you're going to have to wait a week, a month, three months before we're going to do anything else. And there's no medicine to take because we're not fully sure what to do, but we know something's wrong, and here's the deal. Here, friends, is where, again, I think the battle, it's not so much, oh, well, what should I, I'm going to go out and do what? What exactly? I mean, maybe I'll start juicing and I'll do this and I'll do a cleanse and I'll, if I was eating bad, I'll start eating good. And if I wasn't exercising, okay. But I think what we recognize is that this is, this is kind of beyond me right now. I want to invite the power of God. And I also realize that given the amount of time I have to think about this, and given my own sin nature that is inclined to unbelief, doubt, fear, anxiety, and anger, I know that there's a real spiritual battle. And so I need to be spending time heavily emphasizing prayer. And so again, friends, I just want to acknowledge once again Prayer is not a replacement for responsible human action. We see both God's sovereignty and human responsibility and action together. That's the general principle of life. We're not saying one or the other, but there will be times when you'll probably do more of one than the other, or you'll do one more immediately than the other. I hope those two examples were helpful for you. Again, if you have any questions on that, you can press me on that later. Number two, prayer changes things. Number two, prayer changes things. Look at verse 11. And so it was when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed, and when he let his hand down, Amalek prevailed. Notice that prayer changes things. Again, many people discount the power of prayer. Okay, I, I recognize some of you are concerned, because you've expressed this to me, some of you are concerned, gosh, I know some Christians that just pray and then they, they don't do anything. Yes, I, I recognize that can be a problem, but I also recognize there's the other problem. There's people that think prayer is nothing, that prayer is not doing anything. Certainly, it's becoming a prominent concept in Western culture. Western culture is becoming what we call secularized, and secularization is the idea of sort of pushing any specific religion out of the public square, and instead creating this sort of neutral space. We know it's not really neutral. Nature abhors a vacuum. The same is true with spiritual moral truth. So even though the project of secularization says, let's create a neutral public space in politics and society and public education, etc., that, that might be some kind of goal, but that's not what happens, friends, because nature abhors a vacuum, the human heart and soul abhors a vacuum, so some new religion, humanistic religion, whatever it'll be, will rise up there. But anyway, as I was trying to say, there's this idea of we can try to push that out, and as that happens, more and more we're going to say people believe that prayer doesn't do anything. So I've seen it said numerous times when you know, a hurricane hit or or there was a school shooting or something, and people often respond, our prayers are with you. And I've noticed more and more people are saying, save your prayers, they don't do anything. The time for prayer is over. And again, I, as I already said, we're not against responsible human action, but we need to be careful and we need to acknowledge both in our culture, 
and in our own hearts, there can be this tendency to neglect the power of prayer. I have met Christians, believers in Jesus. I'd say that yes, they're saved. They're, they're you know they know the Lord. They know they're sinners, and you know they're going to be with the Lord when they die. But that doesn't mean all their beliefs are biblical or healthy. And I've heard some believers say that prayer doesn't do anything. You know, if if you do prayer at all, it's it's just to be obedient. It's just kind of a religious token. You 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 know you should do it. You ought to do it. You can do it, but it doesn't really do anything. Friends, that's not a biblical view of prayer. The Bible really changes things. Look at what we see in verse 11. So Joshua is being the responsible human person, right? Joshua is being responsible. There's a battle coming, and he goes and gets into the battle. But look what's happening. If you look at what is being said, though Joshua is being responsible, though he's taking action, though he's being brave and courageous... He is going to lose. He is going to lose. We know this because every time Moses' hands are down, he's losing. Amalek is winning. And that makes sense because the Amalekites have been doing battle for a while. They've been a nomadic group in the Negev, in the southern Canaan region, and this seems to be their tactic. We know this from Deuteronomy 25. It's part of the atrocity of the Amalekite battle strategy that warrants the rebuke at the end of Exodus 17, where God says, seemingly harshly, I'm going to blot out the name of Amalek forever. Well, if you read Deuteronomy 25, you understand why. It's because the Amalekites had become this nomadic and they would nomadic group and they would send out raiding parties. And what they would do, Deuteronomy tells us this, they would sneak up at the back and they would look for the elderly and the sick and the tired and they would attack and kill them. They would deliberately target the elderly, the sick, and the tired that were straggling at the back of the group and attack them and then sort of run away. That was their strategy. So they've been battling. The Amalekites know how to fight. They've been fighting. They've got a strategy. They've got experience. They've shed blood before. Now remember, Israel hasn't done this. Israel has fought no battle thus far. This is the first battle that Israel is actually a part of. Prior to this, God all alone, without any human agency at all, defeats Egypt. But here, they're involved. And the picture we get is no matter how hard Joshua works, no matter how hard Joshua fights, no matter what strategy Joshua employs, he is going to lose. Friends, if you take Moses out of this equation, if you take out his lifting up of his hands to heaven, if you take away the, the rod of the staff of God out of his hand, then Joshua loses. So we cannot say prayer doesn't do anything. Or, or, or it's, just, it's just about how much money you have and what, what your budget is and you know, how smart you are and where you got your degree. Again, I think all those things are, are good and we, you know, let's get what we can as far as these things. But don't believe for a moment that those things guarantee victory. Don't believe for a moment that prayer doesn't do anything because prayer really does change things. There might be things you and I are doing right now. We've been putting in all kinds of effort. Like we're exhausted, we're tired because you've, you're you're doing more and you're and you're not seeing the results. Sometimes you can be in a season of life where you're working harder than ever and seeing less results than ever. Is, is anyone there today? I've been in those seasons myself where literally day and night, seven days a week, striving like never before, thinking if you just do this, something will change, and then you find out it's not. Friends, I want to encourage you, if you're not praying, if you're making, you're being responsible, you're doing things you should do, but you're not praying. Friends, I want to encourage you to pray and seek the Lord because prayer really does change things. Number three, prayer is tiring and we need support. Number three, prayer is tiring and we need support. Look at verse 12. But Moses' hands became heavy. So they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side, and his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. So I want you to notice those two things. Prayer is tiring. 
Most of you probably remember the story of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night he is going to be betrayed. You'll remember that Jesus goes there to pray and to be in the presence of God, and he needs that prayer because, humanly speaking, it's, it's, it's crushing him. He needs to be in prayer. And Jesus says to his disciples, pray with me. Watch and pray. And Jesus goes away by himself, and he comes back, and what happens? They fall asleep. If you don't think prayer is tiring, then I'm not sure if you've ever really been diligent in praying. Try praying for an hour. What, what you'll commonly hear from people is, A, I couldn't do it. B, I, I kind of kept at it for an hour, but to be honest with you, Pastor Mike, I started uh, paying my bills online in the middle of my prayer. I, I started answering my text messages. I, I started watching the news on my tablet. I exited out of my Bible app and I started watching the news. And then, and then I saw what decision the governor just made and, and I got so upset I forgot to pray. And, and oh, I saw something and I just started tweeting or commenting on Facebook. Friends, prayer is actually a difficult ministry to stay steadfastly in prayer, to continue in prayer, to engage in spiritual warfare, you'll find that there's pushback. You know, and I'm, I'm not, there's a heaviness that you can actually feel when you're really trying to pray. It's tiring, it's exhausting, and we need support. I think this verse right here, verse 12 in chapter 17, is just a beautiful picture of Christian fellowship. Look, I don't care if you think you're Moses. You're like, man, I have a vision, I have a plan, I have a ba great background, you know, I've got, you know, a lot of experience. I, you know, I don't think I need people. Friends, we all need somebody. We all need support. You know, for many people who say, you know, Pastor Mike, I'm single. I, I, I don't, I'm not married, so I don't have that support. Friends, it doesn't matter whether you're married or not. We're supposed to have some kind of support. That is what the church is for. That's what friends are for. That's what our family is for. And so we want to make sure that we're not isolating ourselves so that we have no support whatsoever. So it's so important we gather together, that we share prayer requests. We do these prayer meetings. We do six prayer meetings a week. And it's an opportunity for us to come together and share support. We get prayer requests from people who, who have cancer and they're saying, I'm having a horrible day. I, I'm, you know, some days I battle my cancer and I, I do it well for the Lord. And other days I just want to give up and I'm, and I'm just exhausted and I can't imagine how God could possibly love me and yet allow this in my life. And they can't bear that alone. And so they share that with us in prayer and we support them and we pray for one another. So friends, I want you to know that if we engage in this battle of prayer, it is tiring and we need support. I think we need to be intercessors for each other. Just as Moses is interceding for the Israelites, for Joshua, for the men that were fighting, I believe we need to be doing this for each other. We need to be supporting each other in prayer. We need to be asking one another, how can I pray for you today? You know, the, the church, the organized church, will always try to organize, hey, this is when we're doing a Bible study. This is when we're doing a prayer meeting. This is when we're doing a men's group or a women's group or, or whatever it is. But friends, you don't need permission from a pastor or a church leader to pick up your phone and text or call or email a brother or sister in the Lord and say, can I pray for you today? Are there any things that any weights that you're, you're struggling with, any burdens that you feel, and I would like to support you in prayer today. Friends, you are already invited to do that. If you were with us in our Wednesday night study through the book of Galatians, we were commanded to do this. As followers of Jesus, he says, bear one another's burdens, and it's imperative. You must bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. We are to be this mutual support for one another. And yes, there's practical ways we can do that. If somebody's like, oh gosh, you know, we're, we're having a hard time financially and, you know, uh, like we, we can't, we can't afford groceries. We can't pay our utilities. And, and the church is like, yeah, yeah, we want to help you. We want to do this. But somebody's like, yeah, you know, uh, I make $2 million a year and I just lost my job. Gosh, can you, can you replace that? And, you know, most people are going to be like, no, I'm sorry. I can't. I can't replace a $2 million a year salary, but I can pray for you. This is this is beyond anything my, my human action could help you with, but I can pray for you. 
and I can join with you for, for wisdom, for guidance, for God's will and way for you. So we are supposed to be fighting this battle together in prayer. We want to make sure we understand prayer is tiring and we need support. Lastly, because we might once again say, okay, well, this is Israel. This is Moses. This is the Israelites, Old Testament Israel. They have the Mosaic law. How does that all apply to us? And I would say the primary connection is in this role of intercessor, one who intercedes on behalf of another. Here in this text, Moses is the intercessor. Moses is the one who goes up to the mountain, lifts his hands to God, and because he's reaching his hands to God on behalf, God's people have victory. Well, friends, as much as you and I know we need to be fighting our battle in prayer, if any of us are prayerless, we need to start praying. If we've only been praying for ourselves, we need to be praying for others. If we haven't been asking for prayer from others for ourselves, we need to reach out and be asking. But friends, we need to understand this. Even the battle in prayer does not ultimately rest on your shoulders. Let me say this again. Even the battle in prayer does not ultimately rest on your shoulders. We have victory in prayer through Jesus Christ, our intercessor. We have victory in prayer through Jesus Christ, our intercessor. Notice what the name of the Lord is here in verse 15. And Moses built an altar and called its name, The Lord is My Banner. The name there is Yahweh Nisi. Yahweh Nisi, or in more traditional English, Jehovah Nisi. And it's translated here, The Lord is My Banner. Now that word banner could be a variety of different things. It can be also a victory Battle, battle cry, a signal, a rallying point. And this idea of the victory, the symbol of the victory, is in this intercessor. And the New Testament tells us that Jesus is our intercessor, the one we look to. We see his hands lifted high, praying for us. We look to him and we have victory. Let me give you two particular scriptures that point to Christ as our intercessor. Romans 8.34. Romans 8.34 says this. Paul says, Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, and listen, who also makes intercession for us. So this role that Moses took, interceding on behalf of Israel in order to give them victory, Jesus is the one now at the right hand of God interceding for us. And perhaps an even stronger verse on this context of an intercessor before God on our behalf, we have Hebrews 7 verse 25. Hebrews 7.25 says this, Therefore he, Christ, is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Listen to that. Christ always lives. He is presently living, presently interceding for you and I. So just as Israel in the heat of battle, when they're being defeated, they look up and they see Moses, the intercessor, reaching out to God and the staff of God. And God gives them the power and the strength to forge ahead and to have victory. So too, you and I, though we are called to be like Joshua, engage in prayer, pray for one another, ask for prayer, be steadfast in prayer, go to God in prayer, rather than just complaining and, and trying to do what we can do in our own human strength. But friends, ultimately, it is a joy to know that the victory in prayer, the battle in prayer, is through Christ our intercessor. You know, some of you, as I'm encouraging you to pray, as I've given you 
a diagnosis where we can know that if we're complaining, if we don't go to God first, if if we only go to other people first, our hearts are getting hard. You could feel condemned about that. You could say, "Oh gosh, I'm I'm not a good Christian. I'm, I'm not doing a good job. Oh, I've I've sinned greatly and I've sinned." But friends, here's the wonderful news. Here is the good news. Even the battle for prayer does not ultimately rest on your shoulders. Even if you and I are not faithful, Christ remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. And he right now, friends, just picture this. Picture just as Moses was lifting up his hands and interceding for Israel and giving him the victory. So the Bible says in both Romans and Hebrews, Christ right now for you and I, in our wilderness, in the midst of COVID-19, governmental response and and uh, abuse and and everything that's going on in the social unrest and the election and 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 our job, we lost our job and the finances and we're we're fighting at home and this is not good or I'm alone at home and I'm so lonely. Friends, isn't it good news to know you can look up and know Jesus' arms are outstretched and He is raising His hands and that the victory is assured to those who trust in Him. So I want to encourage you on this note to go back to reflect on your notes. Let's battle in prayer. Let's do the things God's called us to do. Be responsible, take action. But remember that prayer is changes things. Remember there's power there. Remember the victory ultimately does not come from us. Yahweh Nisi, the Lord is our victory. He is our rallying cry. He is our rallying point. And so we come to him and acknowledge our victory is in Christ. And friends, let's close now in a prayer of request that the Lord will grant us victory today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just come before you this morning and we thank you and praise you that the battle belongs to the Lord. Father, we thank you so much that through Christ you have reached out to each and every one of us. That we who were the Amalekites, we were the bad guys, we were once dead in our trespasses and sins. We were the worldly people. And yet, Lord, through your kindness, through your grace, through your mercy, through the gospel of Jesus Christ, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, you convicted our hearts such that we become members of the household of God numbered with the saints. So Lord, we thank you that you have done this. But Lord, as we look at Israel, we too see that our faith is not perfect, that we might be obeying. We're still going along for the journey, but along the way, because we're in the wilderness, we're beginning to complain. We're beginning to doubt your goodness. We're beginning to turn on people and attack them and even slander them, attributing false motives to them because we're just so scared and angry and upset about all the things that are going on. Perhaps some of us were guilty of this. Our prayer life has been diminished. Rather than come to you and believe that the battle belongs to the Lord, that you are Yahweh Nisi, we have been taking the battle solely upon ourselves. And we feel if we just shout loud enough, if we just argue with people long enough, if we just rally enough people to our opinion that that the battle will then be ours. We can defeat the Amalekites in our own strength. But Lord, I just pray that we would be reminded today that prayer changes things, that the battle belongs to the Lord, that ultimately, even if we battle against bad ideas that human beings have, or we even have flesh and blood enemies, yet we are told here in Scripture, and we see it here in Exodus 17, that ultimately the battle is fought spiritually. The battle is fought in prayer. Lord, make us a praying community of believers. Lord, put a holy burden upon our hearts to cry out to you day and night, to view prayer as a vital and essential ministry that we cannot do without. Lord, inspire us to take upon the burdens of our friends and our family and our church and our country and the world upon ourselves in prayer that we would, before we complain and criticize, we would pray for our enemies. 
we would come before you on their behalf, seeking that they would come to know you and that evil in the world be restrained. Lord, for our brothers and sisters, Lord, help us to pray for them, to not forget about them during the week because we have our own problems, but to remember, as Paul told us in Galatians, we are commanded to bear the burdens of one another, and this is how we fulfill the law of the love of Christ. Lord, we thank you that we can look to you today, that insofar as any of us have failed in our faith, We've, we have failed in our tests in the wilderness. We have been prayerless when we should have been prayerful. And yet we look to you, Christ, who is forever faithful and is interceding for us right now. Lord, I just pray that you would communicate, that you would preach that truth to our hearts, that we would adore you, Lord, that we would thank you that you are praying for us. You are interceding for us. You want to strengthen us. You want to uplift us. You want to give us the joy that we need. You want to give us the peace that we need that surpasses human understanding. You want to speak words of wisdom, words of knowledge, words of prophecy to your people. But Lord, we pray we would have hearts and eyes to receive. Lord, we thank you that the victory is in Christ. And we pray that we would follow in your victory and be obedient to do our battles through the victory of prayer. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.